we'll begin our evening with a short meditation. So just taking some time to settle into the posture for sitting. for the purposes of both insight meditation and Zen meditation. How we arrange our bodies, how we compose our bodies, has a big impact on the practice. So taking some care in attending to the body. What is it to embody the quality of presence? awareness what is it to embody the dignity of this practice may be helpful to begin with a few deep breaths. With each exhalation, letting go any of the momentum of the day. Dogen Zenji, who is the founder of the Soto school of Zen Buddhism, is famous for saying that the kind of meditation he taught is not a technique. It's not a means of getting from here to there. But rather, it is the Dharma gate of joy and ease.
What is it to sit in a way that's not about trying to get somewhere else, but rather to be fully here? You may notice the weight of the body as we sit here. We may notice sounds. We may notice the simple movement of the breath. Is there some way that we can regard our experience as complete in itself? just what it is. This breath doesn't need to be compared to some other kind of breath. This mind doesn't need to be compared some other kind of mind. Thoughts will come and go. Feelings and emotions. <laughs> Sounds will appear and disappear. and we open to the flow of experience exactly as it is right now.
nothing to fix, nothing to improve. Letting this mind, this heart, simply rest in the flow of things. In the 
Chinese and Japanese Zen tradition, there's a, a history of dialogues between the student and the teacher, between the student and the master. And they're often kind of some kind of teaching story. And one that I'm quite fond of um, is something like the student, and the student asks the teacher, what does it mean to meditate correctly and observe true reality? What does it mean to meditate correctly and observe true reality? And the, the teacher says, um, a coin that is lost in the river is found in the river. Got it? <laughs> a little bit, little bit cryptic. A coin that is lost in the river is found in the river. And I think um, maybe we could say one understanding of the river is um, the flow of our experience, the flow of life. And so if we've lost something, a coin that is lost in the river may be referring to some sense of that something is missing. Something is, we're, we've, we've lost something of value. And I think maybe there's a way that each of us come to practice with this kind of feeling like something is missing, something has been lost. We want to get back or recover or find or seek or understand. And so to say a coin that is lost in the river is found in the river. Um, what I love about this is this idea that um, what we feel, what we think we've lost that we're what we feel is missing, what we feel has gone missing from our life is to be found in our life. It's to be found in this flow of experience. It's to be found right here. This life, this body, this heart, this mind, just as it is. You know? And uh, how wonderful is that? That we have what we need. We have everything we need. And um, so something about, at, in its fundamental sense, this practice is about opening to life as it is. Uh, we say bowing to life as it is. And then um, the, the little bit of a irony or paradox that that's exactly what we don't want to do <laughs> often. That life as it is feels like, sometimes it feels like it's a problem. So what is it to, to if life as it is is the problem and then life as it is becomes the solution or becomes the answer? And I think this is something that points to the nature of insight, which one, one definition of insight might be to see what's 
always been there in a new way. You know, to see in a new way something that's, that's been there all along. So this, this shift in understanding, shift in perspective. And so to open to life as it is, is the request of practice. And then this question of what is it that supports us to do this? What supports us to open our heart, open our, our being in this way? Um, there's a, a story about D.T. Suzuki, who is one of the pioneers who, who brought uh, Zen practice or, or, or Zen teaching to to the West, and he lived in the you know, earlier part of the 20th century. And he was once asked, um, what is freedom in Zen? And he responded, he said, the elbow does not bend backwards. Got it? <laughs> what, so he was asked a question about freedom and he responded with an answer about limitation, right? The elbow bends forward, but it does not bend backwards. And this, so something about um, freedom, liberation is intimately connected to structure, to form, to limitation. And so, we come to a place like IRC, where in some way there's a lot of structure, you know, there's a lot of limitation. We're limiting ourselves, we're, we're kind of staying in one place, we're limiting, simplifying our, our day, following the schedule, we're limiting kind of how we use technology, and so we're kind, you know, we're kind of limiting our life in some pretty significant ways. But it's in the service of of, of opening. It's in the service of freeing us. And so at the beginning of retreat, it can be helpful to understand that all of this form and structure is in the service of supporting us to, to be with ourselves, to meet ourselves in this, in this beautiful way. And maybe we wouldn't that wouldn't be so easy if we didn't have this, these kind of forms. So the structure of the, the daily schedule, of sitting and walking and talks and meals, um, the, and the silence, you know, this, this beautiful opportunity to be alone with others. Somebody mentioned this about being alone with others and um, this idea that even though we're, we're all together, we're also sort of guardians for each other's solitude, that each of us is here and we're on our path, we're on our journey, and to kind of respect that for each other. And the silence is just a beautiful, a beautiful way of honoring that. Um, The other idea I love at the beginning of retreat, especially in this time of year where 
it's dark, it's um, win- winter is coming, you know, there's a kind of, I don't know, a kind of coziness that comes with to wake up in the dark and, and this time of, you know, often we talk about light, right, with practice, like enlightenment. Um, but the dark is a very important part of practice. The dark is like the womb. You know, the dark is where uh, something is born. It's like the ground that can be cold in a way and damp, but it's, it's a time of regeneration. And so, I don't know, just an encouragement to kind of stay, stay close, stay cozy, and um, Suzuki Roshi, who was the uh, founding teacher of the San Francisco Zen Center, talked about practice as finding our way in the dark. You know, so even though it's dark, and even though we don't necessarily know the way to go, little by little, we're finding our way. We're taking a step. We're feeling. We're, and then. When we think we know the way, um, that's okay, but we often move a little too fast, maybe, and maybe, you know, um, even though I know it's the, the slogan of Facebook, move fast and break things, um, <laughs> it's not the slogan of Dharma practice, which is um, when it's dark, and we, we don't, we, we can't necessarily see the way we, we naturally slow down. You know, we become more sensitive. All of our other senses come alive. So that's, you know, this idea of retreat practice, um, you know, this kind of wonderful sensitivity and openness of the mind that is willing to not know, that's willing to little by little find our way. And, um, and maybe another way of saying that is it can, it can sometimes be a little bit intimidating to think, oh, that was a once, you know, we just sat for 10 minutes and there's a whole week of this. Oh my God. And, <laughs> And, um, but a retreat is not accomplished in terms of days or hours or sittings or walkings. It's accomplished in terms of moments, moment to moment to moment. And just to do the next thing, just to do the next thing, just to take care of what is right in front of us. You know, it's all we have to do. And luckily enough, that's one of the meanings of um, the, 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 the phrase Genjo Koan, which we'll be talking about in this retreat, is to take care of what's right in front of us. This is all we have to do. Um, and then everything unfolds from that. So.
So I wish you a wonderful, a wonderful week of practice. Yeah, thank you. At this point, I'm going to be sharing with you some reflections about moving into retreat, what it is to enter into this retreat space uh, together in a particular way of framing it with the uh, refuges and precepts, which is a, you could say, a traditional way of entering into retreat space in the Theravada tradition. Before I begin doing that, I just want to invite everyone to uh, mindfully stand up, just to move our bodies just a little bit, just to come into standing, move your body a little bit, and then we'll uh, come and, and sit down together again. The traditional refuges and precepts chant in Pali, Pali being the uh, uh, scriptural language of, of early Buddhism, the first, uh, is, that, is that okay? Yeah. Uh, can you hear me okay? Or Okay, good. Good. Is it working? Okay. The, uh, the first word in, in Pali, Pali being the early, uh, the, the scriptural language of early Buddhism, is this word namo, and the way to, uh, it's often translated is honor. And when I reflect on that, it's been so helpful just to take a few moments to honor specific things as a way of entering into this retreat space together. So one thing that I invite you just to really briefly reflect on as I'm speaking to you is honoring the people who've made it possible for you to be here on this retreat. So sweet, whether it's friends or family or a partner or a neighbor that might be taking care of things while you're here, or maybe coworkers. And not only your immediate circle, but you know, here at IRC, how we're all supporting one another to honor each other and the volunteers here. IMC, all the, all the people who have donated here to make this possible. I think it'd be such a wonderful thing to, to honor that. As I like to say about this path, no one can tread this path for you. And 
you can't do it alone. No one can do it for you and you can't do it alone. And this honoring is simply honoring those who have made it possible for us. Oh yeah, we can't, I can't do it alone. Oh, I'm, I'm here because of the support of others. And then honoring tradition, you know, as, as we've been talking about, we're, we're kind of mixing two traditions. The, the basis is going to be in this tradition of Theravada. Those are the practices that we're going to be sharing with you. And we're going to be looking at the Zen tradition, you know, in particular, this work by uh, Dogen that, that Max was talking about really from the Soto Zen tradition. And it's interesting, both in Theravada and in Zen, there is an honoring of lineage. You know, in, in Zen, it's, it's quite formalized. For those of you who've done Zen practice, you probably are familiar with this. When I was a monk, every morning you would chant your entire lineage, the lineage that you're, you came from. You're chanting your family, honoring, you could say, your ancestors, your spiritual ancestors, to remember, to honor those practitioners and teachers who have brought this to us. And likewise, in the, the Theravada tradition, there's a, often an honoring of those who have come before us to just imagine the practitioners and teachers who have come before us to allow us to, to be here and to learn these teachings. It reminds me of that uh, quote from Isaac Newton, you know, if, if I have seen further it is by standing on the shoulders of giants. So he's talking about Copernicus and Galileo and Kepler, those people who came before him in understanding, really, you could say physics and astronomy. And I feel so grateful that I get to stand on the shoulders of giants and to start there with our practice. and to also honor this land that we're practicing on. I'm here and we're here because of the support of this earth, the earth herself. And also what comes with that is to honor the peoples of this land. Right? The, before colonization, the, the, they it said, or I've been told that this is the land of the Awaswas uh, tribe, which has uh, now been um, combined together with the, the current tribe of the, uh, the Amamutsan uh, tribe of this area. Why would I mention those people? Because there's been all kinds of people living on this land. And it's just to acknowledge this process of colonization that this, that's happened to this land, which is so important given the practice that we'll be doing here together. Because you could say what we're doing is we're just decolonizing the mind. Right? The mind's been shaped by these forces, forces of greed, hatred, and delusion, or unskillfulness. And what a wonderful thing to do for a week to decolonize the heart and mind. So to honor the land and the, the peoples of this land. 
So again, honoring, honoring those who have made it possible for you to be here, honoring tradition and honoring this land and the, the peoples of this land. And then usually what comes after that in this chant is to go for refuge. And I think it's a, it's a wonderful way to understand what we're doing here together on this retreat to get a feeling sense of it. And traditionally it's going for refuge in the Buddha, the Dhamma and the Sangha. So I, I want to share a little bit about that and hopefully offer you some reflections that might make it relevant to you. And I want to point out understanding what it means to go for refuge in the Buddha, Dhamma and Sangha. There's so many different ways of understanding it. So I'm just going to share with you a few and hopefully they, they resonate in some way. So first of all, going for refuge in the, the Buddha. Maybe one story about this, just to, to frame it a little bit. Once upon a time, there was this Brahmin named Dona, and he was, he was on this road, walking down this road, and right ahead of him was the Buddha walking. And he was so moved by just how the Buddha was, was carrying himself. There was just something about him that, that really was touching his heart. And not only that, when he looked down on the road, he saw the footprints of the Buddha. And in the heel of that footprint, it said that Dona saw this, this uh, wheel with a thousand spokes. Right? So, here he is. He's like, he sees someone who's walking in the world in a radically different way, touching the world in a radically different way. So he's quite moved by this. And the Buddha had gone on and had uh, walked into the forest and had found a place to begin sitting meditation. So Dona followed him into the forest. And course he had to interrupt the Buddha's meditation. I mean, here's this guy, you know, what's up with this? <laughs> and so, uh, he goes up to the Buddha and, um, my understanding of the translation, maybe this is a little bit of a loose translation. He asked something like, what's up with the footprints? <laughs> like, wow, I've never seen footprints like that before. You know, are you some kind of celestial being? Are you a deva? And the Buddha said, no, uh-uh. He said, well, are you a Gandaba, which is yet another celestial being? And the Buddha said, uh-uh, no. Or are you a human being? And the Buddha said, no. And then Dona said, well, wh what are you? And the Buddha said, I am awake. What would it be like to spend this retreat resting there, just in being awake to your experience? To enter into this retreat there, into taking refuge in being aware of what's going on right now. Just that wakefulness. So I think this is one way to understand taking refuge in the Buddha that is applicable to our retreat here.
taking refuge in the, the Dhamma. So that's just the Pali word, you know, in Sanskrit, Dharma. I think there's a few ways of understanding it. One is, is taking refuge in these teachings, or you could say this technology of this way of entering into the present moment, this technology of how to meditate. That skill, that way of being with our, our experience, which we'll be going over, you know, every day, giving you more and more instructions about how to refine that. Or another way of understanding taking refuge in the Dhamma, you know, for, for this retreat, which I find so helpful is what's it like to, you know, as Max was pointing to taking refuge in how things are right now. You know, if you got a mind like mine, what my mind likes to do is to think about how things could be different every moment. <laughs> like my mind loves to take refuge there. How could it be different than what's going on right now? That's what I want. I just want something different. I want more of this or less of this. And it's a different turn of my heart to be like, oh, what's it like just to notice what's going on right now? It doesn't mean that I become some kind of bump on a log in my life. It just allows me to begin from a different place with noticing what's going on right now taking refuge in the way things are right now. And then taking refuge in the Sangha. Now, as I said, no one can tread this path for you and you can't do it alone. And Sangha is this expression for the intents and purposes of this retreat. I think there's other traditional understandings, but for the intents and purposes of this particular retreat, can you take refuge in community? It's a way of understanding this word Sangha. That we're here to practice together. Have you noticed this, that there's something different that happens when you practice together in a group? Right? There's something different about it. If there wasn't, you could just do this at home. <laughs> but what I notice is having a week where I'm going to say, I'm just going to do this by myself. That can be tough. There's a momentum that we create together that allows this practice to unfold. And no one can tread this path for you and you can't do it alone. Sometimes I think there's a, a mystery to that power. Now I was told that they, um, after the Bosnian war, they were, were, they were looking at just because of all the trauma that had happened as a result of that war, they were looking at different interventions that they were utilizing to address the trauma that had happened there. You know, so they were looking at like cognitive behavioral therapy and other forms of therapy. And do you know what they found to be the most effective 
way of addressing that hurt. The women's knitting circle. Isn't that a trip? And something so true about it. Can you imagine right, women coming together to knit their lives back together again? We come here to knit our lives back together again or to find the coin in the river that was lost in the river. But together. So the sense of this, of taking refuge in this community. So we have these first parts, the honoring, those who have made it possible, the tradition, the land, the people's this act of taking refuge is a way of starting to get a feeling sense of entering into retreat, taking refuge in the Buddha of being awake, even being awake right now to your experience, taking refuge in the way things are right now, the Dhamma, taking refuge in that we're, we're doing this together. And then the precepts, and you can say the precepts, these ethical guidelines that we're asking you to follow while on retreat are a way to make this togetherness work, to come together in a way that we're holding each other in the silence, really through this quality of non-harming, because that's really the, the essence of the, the, these, these ethical guidelines. Because that's where the power can be is when we offer that to one another, just by having this spirit of kindness and non-harming towards one another on retreat. Because I, I want to acknowledge being a human being among other human beings is such an interesting thing in terms of creating this container. Because I want to point out that we're physiologically designed to find the most safety around other human beings. It really is physiologically embedded in us. We're very much tribal creatures. That's how we find safety. And at the same time, what's the predator that's most threatening to us? Human beings, right? So I, I just want to be honest. This is the thing that we navigate when we come together is like, there's this potential, but it's also tricky given, you know, this predicament of being human beings around other human beings. So we're, we're, we're aiming to prime it into this place of safety, of connection, of support. And I, I want to point out before I go over these, just starting to get that sense that the folks around you are going to have this intention of kindness and non-harming can allow us to feel what it feels like to be in a, in a group of people differently. Like I remember meeting somebody who had, she'd started doing some retreats and then it finally landed upon her. It was like, wow, this is the first time I've really felt relatively safe in a group of people. And the reason she said is because 
I knew that people at least had this intention. Of course, we can still harm each other with, with holding this intention, but it allowed her system to settle in some way. And if, if that's all you get from retreat, that's a huge thing. It's a really beautiful thing for our systems. What a beautiful thing to offer one another of that potential. So how do I make this offering to others and to myself to allow ourselves to be in community? So the first, this first ethical guideline, there's five of them, the five precepts is, is really this, this guideline of uh, having the intention, the training not to harm any living being. <laughs> so this means if there's a spider in your room, you don't intentionally kill it. If you're walking outside and you accidentally step on a spider, that's just what happens. They're very small. Our eyesight's not so good. It's about placing the intention to harm. So we set that aside for the week of, oh yeah, I'm going to hold living beings in kindness, you know, especially each other. And really these, these other guidelines are going to follow upon this, this spirit. The second guideline is to only take what's freely given. So that means not to steal very simply. Like if I were to put a hundred dollar bill in the middle of the, the room, it would be there at the end of the retreat. So I can settle around my belongings in that way. And then the third ethical guideline is for the retreat to refrain from all sexual activity. And I want to point out this has, this has nothing to do with some kind of judgment about sexual activity. Like it could be, you know, that whole realm of sexual intimacy can be a, a beautiful uh, a, arena for expression of love and kindness and connection through that. Not about critiquing that. It's, it can be a really beautiful aspect of being a human being. And yet, it's also a domain of great harm that happens between human beings. So, what's it like just to set that aside? That sense of reaching out in that way, whether towards ourselves or others. And it also has the added benefit of what's it like to start to come into a different relationship to that energy in your body, right? To be able to navigate it skillfully, to take time, to have this time to navigate it differently. What a beautiful gift to the world that is to have skill around that. And then the fourth ethical guideline or training that we're inviting you to um, undertake is to refrain from harming through our speech. Hopefully that'll be pretty easy, right? <laughs> we're like increasing the odds for that by being in silence. <laughs> and that's such a, a beautiful thing to offer one another. So, so just a few things about this. So as uh as Yan Li uh, mentioned, not to, you know, leave a note for another 
practitioner on retreat here. You know, if you need support with something, you know, it's leaving a note, for example, like with the, the managers, there's always a way to find support in that way. But it's in this realm where I've, I've seen this happen on retreat again and again, where someone feels like they're just having a minor conversation with someone else and it doesn't have impact, but it really can have a huge impact. And the, the wonderful thing that we can offer one another is our silence. This warm silence of, of togetherness, because that's what makes this so powerful is, is creating that container of silence. And again, an, another aspect that uh, has been mentioned a couple times, but I want to mention it again because it's so such a powerful part of our lives now is the setting aside the technology and especially our phones. And I want to point out that if if you don't need your phone, sometimes the easiest thing to do is really to give it to one of the managers. Those are powerful things. Right? People in this area have made millions of dollars to get you to look at your phone again and again and again, and they really did a really good job of it. <laughs> And so I find it really helpful to really have that space. And as Max mentioned, of course, if there's something going on that you need to look at your phone, you might want to talk to, to me or Max just so we can talk about how to navigate that, just so there's an openness around that. But it, it can make a huge difference if you can to set, set aside that for retreat. It's going to be the, one of the biggest aspects of, of retreat is just setting that aside. And then the, the last ethical guideline is, uh, the way it's talked about is to refrain from intoxicants that cloud the mind. And the reason for that is when the mind is clouded, it's easier to, to slip into unskillful behavior. So what's important about this is it's, it's taking intox intoxicants with the intention to cloud the mind. Of course, if you have prescription medication that you need to take, please continue to do that. There's a way that that's supporting the mind. So it has to do also around intention as far as that goes. So yeah, continue with those things if that's what you're taking, if they're supports. I also though want to mention um, the use of like plant medicines or psychedelics um, with the intention of, of kind of deepening our spiritual path or sometimes this idea of microdosing with these substances. What I want to point out is, is that here on this retreat, we're just not prepared to support you and you taking those kinds of substances. So I just want to point that out, that it's better not to take those, even microdosing, um, just because we can't support you with that. It's not the container for it. <laughs> And when I say that, this is not a critique of plant medicines or, or that path in terms of it's beneficial or not. You know, a lot of people have found great benefit in that direction. It's not about that. It's just what this, this container can hold. So it's just a, a, a simple thing uh, around that, to refrain from that, if that is indeed part of your spiritual path. Okay, so again, this 
this way that we're creating this, this container together. Mm. Having this intention of, of non-harming, only taking what's freely given to refrain from sexual activity, offering silence to one another and to not take intoxicants that cloud the mind. So again, here's our way of, of entering into retreat together, taking refuge and undertaking these precepts. So now what we're gonna do is we're gonna um, just introduce this, uh, this text that we'll be going over in all of our talks called the Genjo Koan and we'll pass it out and then i'm going to say just a few words about it and then as a way of ending together we'll be chanting it together
So just a couple of things about this uh, text. This uh, this text, the Genjo Koan, was written by Dogen when he was uh, 33 years old. He was living at a actually just a kind of a small practice temple uh, when he wrote this. And he wrote it for a, a lay practitioner, not for a monk, but for a, a certain practitioner who was coming to practice at this practice center, which I think is really interesting. And that he also wrote it in Japanese, which was a big thing because a lot of Dogen's writing was in Chinese because he had gone over to China to practice and a lot of the, you know, the Chan texts were written in Chinese. So there was something I think different about this that he wrote it in his mother tongue. And this is such a significant work just in terms of, of, uh, Jap you know, the, the whole Japanese literary tradition. For example, you know, one translator said that, that the Genjo Koan is um, probably one of the most beautiful and profound works of prose that you can find in the Japanese language. So it's really kind of a significant thing. And as you'll notice when we're chanting it, to, you know, speaking through it and chanting it tonight, um, I want to normalize if none of it makes sense, then you're right on track for the beginning of this retreat. <laughs> so it might feel bizarre and, and, and weird and strange. And maybe some of the sentences, hopefully that Max and I will explain a little bit that will make sense in terms of our practice. So I just want to normalize that experience of it. If that's some of the experience that you have with it the first few days. That, that part of our, our thinking around it is that we're going to recite it um, every day. And um, part of it is, is just that, as Brian was saying, with this, it's a text, but it's not something that you necessarily, um, it's not about figuring it out so much. It's, it's kind of like poetry. So you kind of, you know, sometimes you talk about Zen as you get Zen through the pores of your skin. It's not, you know, it's not about thinking, thinking it and, and working it out that way. So there's something about um, joining our voices together and reciting it. And it's like we become one body and, um, and, and, and something enters in and we don't know exactly what, what it, gets absorbed, but something gets absorbed. And then, and then we're kind of sitting with it, you know, we're sitting with it, we're walking with it. Well, Brian and I will be talking about it in the talks. And so just to kind of let it wash over us, you know, it's like, there's all these beautiful images in the text. And so there's some, so there's something nice about speaking it together and, and, and sharing it that way. And so I think our, our, our thinking is that each evening we'll, we'll, we'll say it together, chant it together. Um, and there's a, in, in, the, in the Japanese Zen tradition, a lot of the chanting is very monotone. You know, this kind of, you know, kanji, zai, bo, satsu, gyojin, han, uh, you know, like the Heart Sutra. And so we don't have a drum and we're not going to be, we're not going to be doing that. So, but we're going to try to, well, we'll see. 
what it sounds like. We're trying to remember how we did it last time, but <laughs> um, but does that sound okay? Is any is every is everyone able to kind of see it or see it well enough? Sorry, we didn't say to bring glasses or anything, but um, and we'll we'll try to keep the lights high while we while we do this. So maybe I'll just start. Um, reciting the first line and then just join in as, as you, as you wish. And we'll try to kind of, you know, there's this expression to in the first little Zendo that I went ever went into. There was a little sign that said, chant with your ears, <laughs> you know, so it kind of means to harmonize, to kind of, you know, become one body, one voice. So we, we'll see how it goes. Okay. As all things are Buddha Dharma, there is delusion and realization, practice, birth and death, and there are Buddhas and sentient beings. As the myriad things are without an abiding self, there is no delusion, no realization, no Buddha, no sentient being, no birth and death. The Buddha way is basically leaping clear of the many and the one. Thus, there are birth and death, delusion and realization, sentient beings and Buddhas. Yet in attachment, blossoms fall and in aversion, weeds spread. To carry yourself forward and experience myriad things is delusion. That myriad things come forth and experience themselves is awakening. Those who have great realization of delusion are Buddhas. Those who are greatly deluded about realization are sentient beings. Further, there are those who continue realizing beyond realization, who are in delusion throughout delusion. When Buddhas are truly Buddhas, they do not necessarily recognize that they are Buddhas. However, they are actualized Buddhas who go on actualizing Buddhas. When you see forms or hear sounds fully engaging body and mind, you grasp things directly. Unlike things and their reflections in the mirror, and unlike the moon and its reflection in the water, when one side is illuminated, the other side is dark. To study the Buddha way is to study the self. To study the self is to forget the self. To forget the self is to be actualized by myriad things. When actualized by myriad things, your body and mind, as well as the bodies and minds of others, drop away. No trace of realization remains, and this no trace continues endlessly. When you first seek dharma, you imagine you are far away from its environs. But dharma is already correctly transmitted. You are immediately your original self. When you ride in a boat and watch the shore, you might assume that the shore is moving. But when you keep your eyes closely on the boat, you can see that the boat moves. Similarly, if you examine myriad things with a confused body and mind, you might suppose that your mind and nature are permanent. When you practice intimately 
return to where you are, it will be clear that nothing at all has unchanging self. Firewood becomes ash, and it does not become firewood again. Yet do not suppose that the ash is future and the firewood past. You should understand that firewood abides in the phenomenal expression of firewood, which fully includes past and future and is independent of past and future. Ash abides in the phenomenal expression of ash, which fully includes future and past. Just as firewood does not become firewood again after it is ash, you do not return to birth after death. This being so, it is an established way in Buddha Dharma to deny that birth turns into death. Accordingly, birth is understood as no birth. It is an unshakable teaching in the Buddha's discourse that death does not turn into birth. Accordingly, death is understood as no death. Birth is an expression complete this moment. Death is an expression complete this moment. They are like winter and spring. You do not call winter nor summer the end of spring. Enlightenment is like the moon reflected in the water. The moon does not get wet, nor is the water broken. Although it is white and great, the moon is reflected even in a puddle an inch wide. The whole moon and the entire sky are reflected in dewdrops on the grass, or even in one drop of water. Enlightenment does not divide you, just as the moon does not break the water. You cannot hinder water, just as the drop of water does not hinder the moon in the sky. The depth of the drop is the height of the moon. Each reflection, however long or short its duration, manifests the vastness of the dewdrop and realizes the limitlessness of moonlight in the sky. Dharma does not fill your whole body and mind. You think it is already sufficient. When Dharma fills your body and mind, you understand that something is missing. For example, when you sail out in a boat in the midst of an ocean when no land is in sight and view the four directions, the ocean looks circular and does not look any other way. But the ocean is neither round nor square. Its features are infinite in variety. It is like a palace. It is like a jewel. It only looks circular as far as you can see at that time. All things are like this. Though there are many features in the dusty world, the world beyond conditions, you see in only what your eye of practice can reach. In order to learn the nature of the myriad things, you must know that although they may look round or square, the other features of oceans and mountains are infinite in variety. Whole worlds are there. It is so not only around you, but also directly beneath your feet or in a drop of water. A fish swims in the ocean, and no matter how far it swims, there is no end to the water. A bird flies in the sky, and no matter how far it flies, there's no end to the air. However, the fish and the bird have never left their elements. 
When their activity is large, their field is large. When their need is small, their field is small. Thus, each of them totally covers its full range and each of them totally experiences its realm. If the bird leaves the air, it will die at once. If the fish leaves the water, it will die at once. Know that water is life and air is life. The bird is life and the fish is life. Life must be the bird and life must be the fish. It is possible to illustrate this with more analogies. Practice, enlightenment, and people are like this. Now, if a bird or a fish tries to reach the end of its element before moving in it, this bird or this fish will not When you find your place where you are, practice occurs, actualizing the fundamental point. When you find your way at this moment, practice occurs, actualizing the fundamental point. For the place, the way, is neither large nor small, neither yours nor others. The place, the way, has not carried over from the past and is not merely arising now. Accordingly, in the practice enlightenment of the Buddha way, meeting one thing is mastering it, doing one practice is practicing completely. Here is the place, here the way unfolds. The boundary of realization is not distinct, for the realization comes forth simultaneously the mastery of Buddha Dharma. Do not suppose that what you comes your knowledge and is grasped by your consciousness. Although actualized immediately, the inconceivable may not be distinctly apparent. Its appearance is beyond your knowledge. Zen master Baoshe of Mount Mayu was fanning himself. A monk approached and said, Master, the nature of wind is permanent and there is no place it does not reach. Although you understand that the nature of wind is permanent, implied, you do not understand the meaning of its reaching everywhere. What is the meaning of its reaching everywhere? asked the monk again. The master just kept fanning himself. The monk bowed deeply. The actualization of the Buddha Dharma, the vital path of its correct transmission is like this. If you say that you do not need to fan yourself because the nature of wind is permanent and you can have wind without fanning, you will understand neither permanence nor the nature of wind. The nature of wind is permanent. Because of that, the wind of the Buddha's house brings forth the gold of the earth and makes fragrant the cream of the long river.
well. You can imagine Master Baoshe gently fanning us to sleep <laughs> with the cool wind of practice, cool wind of the Dharma. So sleep well. See you in the morning. <laughs>